You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We continue to hear God's Word this afternoon in both the Old and New Testaments concerning the Tenth Commandment, You Shall Not Covet, which we considered this afternoon in Lord's Day 44. We turn first to the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 12, and after that to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6. We begin our reading then in Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain, since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, and be happy in his work. This is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart 
We continue reading in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And finally, we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, from which we read the verses 6 through 21. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to hope, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. You have come in the Heidelberg Catechisms to Lord's Day 44, which we give our attention to this afternoon. You can find that on page 523 or thereabouts in the Book of Praise. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. 
But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Tenth Commandment is really about what you have your heart set on. The Tenth Commandment is about what you have fixed your desires upon. When God says, you shall not covet, He is addressing our thoughts, our hearts, our desires. As the Catechism says, what does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. It's about our hearts. It's about the thoughts and the desires of our hearts. In this sense, the first and last commandments are very closely related. In the first commandment, God tells us, You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther stated in his larger catechism, and I quote, That now upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. You could say then that the Tenth Commandment brings us to the very heart of whom we worship and how we worship. The Tenth Commandment really brings us full circle back to the First Commandment. Will we worship the one God and Him alone and have no other gods beside Him? Or will we follow our own sinful desires into idolatry and lust? and craving for more. That's why this afternoon we're going to devote some attention to Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, or the pastor as he could also be called. And I would invite you to have your Bibles open in the book of Ecclesiastes, since we will be doing a lot of looking up of various passages. Solomon The author of Ecclesiastes introduces himself at the beginning of the book as the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. As such, Solomon, like his father David, is really a shepherd king. Words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon, like his father David, is a shepherd king. King. He's called the Koheleth in Hebrew. And sometimes that word is translated and used in the English as well, Koheleth, which is 
which means one who gathers. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd gathers his sheep. In this case, Solomon the Koholath is the one who gathers the sheep of God's flock together in order to instruct them in wisdom. The pastor of Ecclesiastes shows the close relationship there is between the manner of our worship and the state of our hearts. The sin of coveting is really the sin of wanting to have everything in our control rather than worshiping God and entrusting everything to His control. Coveting is the very opposite of contentment. God wants to give us contentment because contentment rests on being able to trust Him alone as the one we worship. In fact, God calls us to contentment. He commands us to be content so that we can offer Him right and complete worship. The shepherd king sums it up at the end of his letter when he says, as we read in Ecclesiastes 12, when he says there in the verses 13 and 14, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, everything that's in our heart, whether it is good or evil. Now, this is something that is very hard for us fallen creatures to do, to fear God and keep His commandments. We are so much like our first parents, Adam and Eve. In the beginning, they were given dominion over all the creatures of the earth, and they were to shepherd them, so to speak. Adam and Eve were to take care of all the creatures that God had made and to lovingly rule over them. But they weren't content with all that. They wanted more. They wanted even more than God had already given them. They wanted more control. In fact, they wanted everything in their grasp. They wanted to be like God. But you know what happened instead? Instead, they ended up chasing after the wind. That is, they ended up trying to pursue, to gather, to shepherd the wind. Which, as you know, is impossible to do. If you've ever tried to gather the wind, you know it doesn't work. For God alone is able to direct the wind. He is the one shepherd. And that's why through the shepherd King Solomon, God our shepherd wants us to pause and consider the purpose of all our striving, of all our doing, of all our desiring. He asks us, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? To put it a little more personally, brother, sister, what are you striving for and 
Why? That's my question to you and to myself this afternoon. What are you striving for and why? What are you desiring in your deepest thoughts and hearts and why? Like Adam and Eve, we all have the tendency to become control freaks and workaholics and worse. We're all inclined to be strivers. Not content with the lot that God has given us, we grab and we strive and we work for more and more and more. We think that the harder we work and the more we grab and the more we strive, the more control we have. And we think that the more control we have, the happier we will be. Forbidden though the tree is, we still desire its fruit. As Adam and Eve did, we covet. We covet that fruit. We want to get our hands on it. Now you know, brothers and sisters, that Solomon was surely in a position to tell us why that is so foolish and so silly. You know something about King Solomon, I'm sure. You know that he was the greatest king and the richest man on earth at the time. He could have and he could get whatever he wanted, humanly speaking. But you know what he discovered? That he gained nothing. It didn't provide him with true contentment. Look at what he tells us as he opens his heart to us in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, the verses 3 and following. Beginning in the second part of verse 3 of chapter 2. This is what Psalm says, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under, under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. You see, as Solomon reflects on everything that he has accumulated and all that he has accomplished, And all that he has, Solomon despairs about what will happen to it 
in the future. Who will get it? What will that person do with it? Isn't he likely to be irresponsible with something he himself has not worked for? That's why through the shepherd king, so Solomon concludes that the best thing for him to do is to enjoy life and be satisfied with what he has. The best thing for a person to do is to stop striving and be content. Look at what he says. Look at what he concludes in chapter 2, the verses 24 through 26. A man can do nothing. After he considers all those things and the meaningless of it all, the meaninglessness of it all, and how he doesn't know what's going to happen to all that he's accumulated, he says the best thing for a person to do is to be content. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after wind. You see, there is the difference. The righteous person, the one who lives according to the tenth commandment and does not covet, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. God enables him to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in his work. In other words, to the righteous person who resists coveting and stops striving and stops grabbing, God gives the gracious gift of contentment. But what happens to the sinner who keeps on coveting? God gives him over to his discontent. God lets him be a workaholic and he lets her be a pleasure seeker. God lets that person continue to be a wealth accumulator. God gives him the job he wants gathering and storing up wealth, but he can only do that with a sour face. And even then, it is all a waste. Because in the end, the unsatisfied person will have to hand it over, hand it all over, to the one who pleases God. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Solomon shows the utter folly of loving money. In the first place, there's always someone with more money. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in the district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. In other words, there's always someone who's in a better position, who's making more money, who is more successful. There's always someone with better or nicer toys, or computer games, or dollhouses, or sports equipments. 
things that we have our eye on. The second thing that Solomon shows about the utter folly of loving money is that if you love money, you'll never have enough. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. As we read, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. You think, if I just, if I just have this one more toy, just this gadget, just this vacation, just this dress, or this piece of property, or this job, I'll be satisfied. But as soon as the novelty wears off, you're craving for more and better. The third thing that Solomon shows us about the folly of loving money is that the more wealth you have, the more responsibility you have, and not necessarily more joy. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Fourth, the more money you have, the more anxiety you have. Chapter 5, verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Listen to what one wise commentator said long ago. And I quote, Money is, in truth, one of the most unsatisfying possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There's the trouble in the getting of it. There is the anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is the guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. The more money you have, the more anxiety you have, Solomon teaches us. The fifth thing he tells us is that it can disappear. Chapter 5, the verses 13 and 14. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Like Solomon says elsewhere, cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. That's the thing about money. It can disappear just like that. Sixth thing, we can't take it along. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. You can't take it with you when you die. The seventh thing, there will always be those, in spite of all these things, who will sentence themselves to the useless pursuit of money. Look at what he says in the verses 16 and 17. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness 
with great frustration, affliction, and anger. That's the result of the pursuit of money, of making money your God. Nothing but frustration, affliction, and anger. And then notice that here again at the end of chapter 5, Solomon sees even more clearly than before that it is best to be content, to be satisfied and happy with the lot that God has given. Look at what he says there at the end of chapter 5. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. In other words, the one who has money and can enjoy it, be content with it, He is happy. The one who receives it as a gift from God and enjoys it in a a life of worship to God, he or she will be happy and content, satisfied. What is Solomon the pastor the shepherd king urging us to do. Well, he's urging us to find joy and satisfaction in the life, in the job, in the lot, in the stature of life that God has given us instead of being sour and discontented. Solomon is telling us, and he's been there, Solomon is telling us not to get caught up in the mad pursuit of gathering and collecting whatever we can get our hands on. Solomon is advising us to see the blessings that we have not as a means for power and control, but as gracious gifts from God to be enjoyed. Solomon is advising us to enjoy what we have, to play with the toys we have, to be happy in the home God has given us, to find delight in the simple pleasures that God has poured out into our lives instead of grasping for what we do not have or what others have. Solomon is telling us that we should learn to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in our work. And you know, brothers and sisters, this is something that God has always been telling His people. Consider what we read in Deuteronomy 14. You can leave your finger, one of your fingers at at, uh, Ecclesiastes and turn for a moment to Deuteronomy 14. Look what we we hear here. 
After telling the Israelites to bring the tithe, that is, 10% of all that their field produces to the temple, what does the Lord do? He invites them to eat and drink and rejoice. Let's read that together. Deuteronomy 14, starting at verse 22. Here the Lord says through Moses to his people Israel, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling place for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. You see what God is doing here? God is saying, okay, you come and bring me the tithe. Come and bring the 10% that you owe me. And then come and enjoy it in my presence. Let's continue reading. Verse 24. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away... Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You see this, brothers and sisters? The Israelites, every three years, they were to take those tithes. They were to take those tithes, first fruits, and bring them to the Lord in Jerusalem. And then they were to enjoy them in the presence of the Lord. They were to eat, drink, and rejoice. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to eat, drink, and be satisfied. That's what the Lord's Supper is really about. It's about eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord our God and rejoicing in Him, in worship. What we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is really a picture of what we need to do with our entire life. That is, we need to receive the blessings that God gives us, big and small, food and drink and everything else. And then go and enjoy them in His presence. If we do not find contentment in worship from God, we will not find contentment at all. Here again, you see the connection between the first and the final commandments. We either worship the Lord alone and find all our satisfaction, delight, and blessing in Him, or we turn those blessings God has given us 
into gods and worship them. And then we will never find contentment. Now, as fallen creatures, we like to have power and control not only over our money and possessions, but also over our time and schedules. With all the fast-paced and accurate technology, transportation and tools that we have, we can easily begin to think that we are in control. We know exactly what time it is, right down to the second. And we've got everything planned, right down to the hour and the minute. Consider the outrage of people, for example, when their flight is delayed even by a small amount of time. Have you ever observed that at an airport? How angry people can become if their flight is delayed even for 20 minutes or an hour or even two hours. How much of that outrage isn't caused by people's annoyance that they are no longer in control? We have little problem identifying with that sort of annoyance because most of us would be inclined at least to react along the same lines. If it's not our delayed or canceled flight that's thrown a monkey wrench into our plans, it's an unexpected sickness or death. An unscheduled breakdown or machine failure. An unwelcome phone call or piece of mail. An unanticipated change to our summer vacation plans or our plans for September. An economic slump and rough financial times that we're totally unprepared for. Well, in the Tenth Commandment, God commands contentment with respect to His timing too. And as always, he gives what he commands. You remember those famous words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 and following. Back to Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. Now, people have often taken this all as a reference to our activity, our schedules. There's a time for us to do this, and there's a time for us to do that. But you see, Solomon is talking here about God's timing, not ours. When Solomon says that there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven... What he means is that there is an appointed time. There's a time that has been predetermined, that has been planned by God. The first part of Ecclesiastes about, the first part of Ecclesiastes 3 is about God's activity, not ours. It's like we confess in Lord's Day 10. 
God so governs all things that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And so, as we confess there, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. Scripture tells us that our times are in God's hands, the day of our birth and the day of our death. The day we met the love of our life and the day we had the the debilitating injury. It's all determined by God. The day we posted a huge profit and the day we took a devastating loss. Also world events like presidential elections and provincial elections and international relations. It was God who appointed Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to take his people into exile. And it was also God who made Cyrus, king of Persia, well disposed to the Israelites at that time. So that they could return from exile and rebuild the temple. It is God who has determined when there is war in the Middle East and when the conflict in Afghanistan will end in peace and when the wildfires will go out in British Columbia. All the big things and the little things that happen in our lives have been scheduled by the Lord, by the one shepherd who leads and guides our lives in all the world. That's why, as we will sing soon in Psalm 131, we need not concern ourselves with great matters or things too wonderful for us. We may still and quiet our souls. We may relax and be content like a weaned child with its mother. All will be well. For notice what else Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3. In verse 11, he says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Notice how he says it. Solomon doesn't say everything will become beautiful in its time. No, Solomon says that God has already made everything beautiful in its time. That is, God has made everything suitable, fitting in its time. God's timing is perfect. God is never off schedule. Our schedules and plans may be thrown off, but God's schedule And master plan never fails. Here too, Solomon reaches a similar conclusion. In verses 12 through 14 of Ecclesiastes 3, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction, be content in all his toil. This is the gift of God 
I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere Him. Did you hear that? The Tenth Commandment also touches on our schedules and plans, our thoughts and our desires for our present and future. And God has all these things in His hands so that men will revere Him. So that we will revere Him. To use the words of Lord's Day 44, to not even have the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments in our hearts and to hate all sin and delight in all righteousness with all our hearts is also related to how we see things shaking out in our lives. This is a question we all need to answer. Are our thoughts and desires resisting what God has scheduled and planned for us? Or do we delight and find satisfaction and rest? Are we able to relax in the knowledge and comfort that God is arranging everything perfectly well for us? Whether it's a time of planting or a time of uprooting, whether it's a time of tearing down or of building up, whether it's a time to mourn or a time to dance. God doesn't ask you when He should take away your spouse or your friend, your parent or your child. Not because what you think matters little to Him, but because He already knows what will work out best for you. God doesn't ask you when you would like to meet the love of your life and what hair, color, height, and personality you prefer. Because He's already decided who that person will or will not be. God doesn't ask, ask you what sort of returns you would like to receive on your investments. Because He knows best what you will need for your children's post-secondary education and your retirement and your home and so on. God has decided for you which school or which program you will enter in September because He knows best. Whatever happens... Are we still able to eat and drink and find satisfaction in all our toil to be happy? Through His Word this afternoon and also by means of the Lord's Supper every time we celebrate it, God holds out not only His command to us that we must find our satisfaction in Him, but also His promise that He wants us to and that one day we perfectly will. This commandment doesn't only have to do with our relationship to God, though, but also with our neighbor. If the root of all coveting sin against the ninth commandment is is not being able to completely trust God, essentially hating God, sin against the first commandment, 
then this hatred against God will also find expression in hatred toward our neighbor. One of the best antidotes to coveting is sharing. Coveting is rooted in selfishness, self-love, and God-hate, neighbor-hate. But sharing is rooted in servanthood and God-love and neighbor-love. That's what Solomon means with what he says in chapter 4, the verses 7 through 12. Look at what we read there. Chapter Ecclesiastes 4, beginning at verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. As Martin Luther wrote, it is better to be in association with others and, in, and to enjoy things in common than to be a solitary miser who only cares about himself and grabs things for himself alone. In community, there is mutual help, common work, and common solace, said Luther. And here the catechism certainly hits the nail on the head when it says, that the Tenth Commandment touches all the commandments and forbids the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments. Are not all the sins of killing and hating, Sixth Commandment? Adultery and sexual immorality, the Seventh Commandment? Stealing and greed, the Eighth? Lying and false testimony, the Ninth? Are not all these sins against the commandments at root sins of selfish human pride whereby I want and grasp for myself what others have, whether it is their reputation, their body, their spouse, their possessions, their toys, their integrity? I'm not content with the gifts that I have from God and want what he's given another. I'm not content what I have from God, so I want what he's given to someone else, and I take them from him or her by hook or by crook. So God is telling us through Solomon to eat and drink and enjoy life not by yourself, but in fellowship with others. In other words, share with others rather than grabbing from others. Sit at the table with others in church, at home. 
Enjoy food and drink and friendship in holiness and joy and with contentment. God has invited you to His table, not by yourself. He's invited you and others because He wants you to share His gracious gifts to you in community with others in the communion of saints. Indeed, brothers and sisters, when we reflect on all these things, then we have to say that even the holiest of us have only a small beginning as the Catechism says. The only way we will make progress in our pilgrimage of faith and obedience to God's commands is to learn to rest in God and God alone. Finding joy and satisfaction in life is not opposed to living according to God's commands. It's what it's all about. Notice that the same Solomon, the same pastor teacher who tells us at the end of Ecclesiastes to fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, is the same God, is the same one who earlier told us to eat, drink, and find satisfaction, to accept our lot and be happy. Should we be surprised? Not at all. For when we are trusting God and keeping His commandments, then God will fill our hearts and lives with gladness so that we can eat and drink and find satisfaction in our work. When we are worshiping the one God and Him alone and finding and seeking everything in Him, then we will be content and happy and satisfied. That's His promise. That is the gift that God is eager to give you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org. Thank you.